Good evening to everyone and all, and welcome to all of you. And also a big welcome to those who are listening in on SoundCloud. Um, this evening, our teaching will be from Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 to 27. So we're going to read the scriptures first, and then we're going to pray, and then we'll get into the teaching. Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 to 27. Now when he got into a boat, his disciples followed him. And suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea, so that the boat was covered with the waves, but he was asleep. Then his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. But he said to them, Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So the men marveled, saying, Who can this be, that even the winds and the sea obey him. Father, we want to thank you that you are here present with us. We ask, Holy Spirit, will you speak to each and every one of us? We ask for our eyes to be open to see what we need to see, Lord, for our ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church, and for our hearts to be good soil, that we will yield a harvest, some 30, some 60, even some 100 for. And so be with me also, Lord, and be with my brothers and my sisters, that we will have Jesus revealed for us afresh. And we praise you and we glorify you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is a very familiar passage, and I think you would have heard many, many messages around this. Uh, one simple account, and yet if you dig deep within it, Okay, even if you don't want to dig deep, I think there are just so many lessons that you can draw from this. You can title this message in so many, many different ways. The question I want you to ask is, what was Matthew's objective? Why did he record this in this way? What was he trying to communicate to his readers? Was it, for example, about following Jesus? Well, that's important, and I think that's something that we can draw from it. Or uh, maybe it's about how there will be storms in this life, right? That's a very typical one as we read about these uh, winds and the waves and so on. Or maybe the lesson is uh, that, don't worry, you know, Jesus is in the boat with you. So that's cool. Uh, that sounds rather poetic. Or perhaps since Jesus is with us, then we can sleep through any storm. You think, you know, preachers might have also said something like this. Or you remember Sunday school, you know, with Christ in the vessel, we can smile at the storm. I mean, all very good teachings, right? So, so many of these things. And Jesus says, peace, be still. He, and he silenced everything. So does it mean then that we can teach that Jesus gives us great peace? Now, all these are valid points. And we can use this passage to preach any one of these portions. But let's explore some of these things, and we will get to these, but we must not miss Matthew's main intent. And that's why I start with this. I want you to hold that question, because right at the end, we will answer that question. So let's look at what we have first. We have been journeying through Matthew chapter 8 and chapter 9. Once again, as a review, chapters 8 and 9 is about Jesus demonstrating His authority, as well as training his disciples, is a record of uh, 10 miracles from one chapter to the next chapter. And inserted within that would be two, what I call, discipleship footnotes. We've already gone through the three miracles right in the beginning, that first group. We are now entering the second group of miracles. Last lesson, we spoke about the discipleship footnotes, and aptly it was entitled, Read the fine print. Remember, to, to one disciple, Jesus actually said, uh, don't procrastinate. No, no excuses. Don't talk about uh, going back to bury your father first. I, I, this is as good as any time. Come, follow me right now. To the other one, who was a scribe, he actually said, you manage your expectations. <laughs> it's, if you're going to follow me, it's not going to be a bed of roses. Be prepared for uncertainties. Are you still game? Do you still want to follow Jesus? And if we back up a little bit, we see in Matthew chapter 8, verse 18, it says that Jesus saw the great multitudes about him, and he gave a command to depart to the other side. 
Now, those three words are interesting. The other side. Would you follow Jesus to the other side? Jesus is saying, look, if you want to follow me, then wherever I go, you've got to follow me. And he gets into the boat, and the disciples followed him to the other side. Now, what is this other side? Well, specifically in this passage, Jesus possibly would have been preaching around the place of Capernaum. That's his, uh, like a home place, his home ground in Capernaum. And he would have to cut across right now the Sea of Galilee to go to this other place called Gergesa, to the region of the Gadarenes. So Jesus wants to get into the boat and the disciples followed him to the other side. Now, Capernaum to Gergesa, this distance between that, I did a little check. And if I'm correct, I'm told that if you go by boat, right across it would be about six miles in distance. Not very far. But because in those days, no power boats, no uh, uh, engines, they are just they dependent on the sails and the wind, it might take about two to three hours by boat. Now, I want to tell you, it's really quite... Uh, coincidental that Singapore to Batam also about six miles. And although it takes about maybe 50 to 55 minutes by ferry, for this distance here, for their travel, it would take about two to three hours by boat. And so when Jesus gets into the boat, his disciples followed him. And the word for the other side is also an interesting discovery. Actually, it means to, it comes from a root to cross over, to get over to somewhere. In fact, to go further, to go beyond. And friends, the challenge for us is, it's not about Jesus just calling disciples and will you be my disciples. If you have been following Jesus, do you realize this? Every moment and every step in your journey, Jesus will challenge you to go to the other side. Jesus will challenge you to go further. Jesus will challenge you to go beyond. Now we may say yes and amen, but the truth is, most of us, after a while, we run to camp where we are to get beyond somewhere, to go beyond, to go further, sometimes it can be difficult. It can be um, a, a little bit uncomfortable. And for many believers and many Christians, I think the first challenge is, would you get beyond salvation? Do you know it's sad that Christians today are still arguing about, about what salvation is or what it is not? I mean, it's important. But you notice we, we are still debating about these things that we don't get beyond what salvation is. There's so many things. And that's why there's this need to awaken the believers to say, come on, wake up, guys. Let's align with what the king is, what the kingdom is, because the king is saying, would you follow me to the other side? Would you go further? Will you go beyond salvation? Will you go beyond what church routine might be? Would you go beyond what churchianity is? Following Jesus is about going further. Don't get stuck in a comfort zone. And I've been preaching over and over again and sharing with people about what the assembly area is and what the area of operation is. Our problem is we are happy in the assembly area, but to get to the other side, that's the area of operation nobody wants to go. Would you follow Jesus to the other side? Would you, would you get on board? And that's why this evening, the, the title is all aboard. Right? Jesus gets into this boat. He's almost shouting, are, are you in? I mean, we're going now to the all aboard? Would you follow me to the other side? As we look at this verse in Matthew 8, 23, it says, He got into a boat. His disciples followed him. Now, if you're a typical traditional Christian, like I am too, the moment you read these words, his disciples, how many do you think there would be? We always think 12, right? So I always ask an interpretative question. Is it just 12 or could there have been more? Remember, a scribe came. He's not one of the 12. Another one of the disciples, he may or may not have been one of the 12, right? Which means possibly it could be more than 12. Now, if we read the parallel passage in the book of Mark, we will see that there were other little boats who were also with him. It wasn't just the disciples with him in the boat, but there were also other boats that followed him. We can presume there were 12 who followed Jesus, if you want to stick to the traditional 12 disciples. But don't you think there would have been others who said, 
I'm game. I'm going over to the other side. And they were willing to make the journey with Jesus across the Sea of Galilee. And I think the lesson for us to remember is this, that everyone is invited to follow Jesus. Everyone is invited. Jesus is saying, would you follow me? See, traditionally, we always think that we have to be called to be a disciple. And I've shown you time and again that there are many who offered themselves to say, Jesus, I will follow you. And as much as Jesus would be happy for them to follow, he never lowered the bar. He didn't like jump for joy, do a cartwheel and say, oh yeah, my church membership is going up. No, he would say, are you sure this is what you are in for? Read the fine print. Everyone is invited to follow Jesus. And I don't want you to ever, ever disqualify yourself. Don't only think that, oh, it's only for the elite few. It's only for the 12. I'm still waiting for the call. Jesus has called. He has invited all of us. All He's saying is, if you really, really want to follow me, friends, you've got to read the fine print. You've got to know what is expected. You must be ready for any and every eventuality and get ready for all uncertainties. And so we have in this account, speaking of uncertainty, suddenly they get into the boat and they follow Jesus and then suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea. And the boat was covered with the waves, but Jesus was asleep. You want to follow Jesus? <laughs> suddenly. You want to join something? Suddenly. You want to know your assignment? Suddenly. Don't you love life's suddenlies? And not one of us will be exempted from these suddenlies. And even more, when we say we want to follow Jesus, we should expect these suddenlies. Now already, if you're not a Christian, you're not following Jesus, I've got enough suddenlies already. What more if you follow Jesus? One day you can be praising God, worshipping God, and suddenly you are crying out for help. Another day, everything can be okay. You know, this is like, the, wow, this is church, man. This is so cool. And then suddenly, one day you're on a mountaintop. Oh, awaken, praise the Lord. And then suddenly, life deals us lots of suddenlies. And if you were one of the disciples in the boat, just imagine, what would your feeling be? As you have gotten into this boat, you're with Jesus. Remember, huh? Jesus just told this scribe and told this other guy, huh? you better know what you're in for. You know? Are you in or are you out? Now, you just made the decision to get in. You must be feeling so good about yourself. Right? I must be feeling, well, I made a decision for discipleship. I signed up for the awakening event. And then suddenly... Suddenly, the disciples were like, wow, I've, I've made a decision. I've made a commitment. I'm on a mission trip with Jesus. I'm on assignment for Jesus. I'm serving God. Suddenly. Now, I want you to be aware. Because we don't want to buy into a theology that says, if you follow Jesus, everything is going to be okay. If you believe in Jesus, then you're going to be prosperous. You're going to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. If you're going to believe in Jesus, then you're going to have a life full of abundance. But we think of it in our own terms. Suddenly, suddenly. Now, you can be metaphorical about it. You can be symbolic about this. But I want to remind you again, when you read this passage, don't ever forget, we're talking literally, there was a storm. There was a mega, mega storm. The words in the, in the Greek literally uses that, a great tempest. And the word great means mega, just like when we talk about mega malls and you know, mega marts and mega churches. It's, it's not a big storm. It's a mega storm, a mega tempest. And in Mark chapter 4, verse 37, Mark uses the words a great windstorm, a great hurricane-like thing. And the word actually is the animos. Animos means wind. Anyone watch uh, Nemo, Finding Nemo, the anemone? That comes from the word animos. A sea anemone means you know, being blown about in the sea. And so a great mighty wind was there. So it, it, was a, it was a whirlwind. And it makes you really wonder, right? I mean, these guys were on mission for Jesus. You know? They're going over to the other side. You know? They're on assignment. You know? Maybe they forgot to pray. <laughs> Do you think about this? Right? I mean, if you and I were to go on some ministry trip or some mission, we'll pray. And then one of the standard items is, Lord, please give us good weather. 
Maybe they forgot to pray. I don't know. Maybe they prayed, but their faith not strong enough. I don't know, right? The, the, the point is this. You can pray and things can happen. I'm not saying don't pray. I'm saying get ready and you can expect some suddenlies. Now, how did the storm come about? There are two possibilities. The first possibility is a, is a topographical possibility. If you know the Sea of Galilee is a fresh water, actually it's a lake. It's enclosed, it's 30 miles long, 7 miles wide, and it lies about 600 over feet below sea level. It's surrounded by the high hills all over the place. It's formed a, a natural bowl, and because of the compression of air and so on, if you know all these air pressure systems, then it is prone to sudden storms that can form very quickly with little or no warning. And so it could be a geographical, it could be a topographical uh, reason why the storms appeared. In other words, very common. It might be uncertain, but it was fairly common. So it was certainly uncertain or uncertainly certain. So these guys might have been used to some of these kind of storms. But there's a second possibility, and the second possibility is spiritual. It might have been a satanic opposition. Because we are told that this storm was just so great, so big, that even these were, some of them were expert fishermen. I mean, they would have been out on the Sea of Galilee for, for years. They are skilled people. And somehow they were not able to handle this one. So there's a spiritual possibility, perhaps to destroy the Messiah. You notice in the Bible when it records, huh, we only see storms when Jesus is in the boat, you know. Or Jesus might not have been in the boat and He sends the disciples uh, along the way, right? But it's something about being on mission for God, don't you think? Other than that, we don't hear of any record of it. Right? Maybe it's to disrupt the mission. Because when you get to the other side, we will read next time in the next passage that there was a kingdom assignment that awaited them on the other side. Immediately when they get down there, they meet two demon-possessed men who lived among the tombs. Welcome to Halloween in the month of October. And so if you are going on a kingdom assignment, should you not be prepared for a spiritual opposition? It may not be of this magnitude, but would you agree that when the kingdom of God advances, the enemy doesn't take it sitting down? And you've got to expect some form of opposition every now and then. I know that's enough to deter people from wanting to know their assignments, right? But I can tell you, we have no choice. We are believers of Jesus. We are followers of Jesus. We are disciples of Jesus. If He says, get in the boat, we get in the boat. If He says, I'm going over that side, I'm sending you that side, we go where the King sends us. So the point is not to avoid this. The point is to expect this and understand how we can address this. Two possibilities. One is geographical, topographical. But I'm inclined to think it is actually spiritual. Fishermen who cannot handle a, a storm that they are used to because it's very frequent. Something might be demonic. And so they were surprised by the, the suddenlies and I can tell you that when life throws a curveball at us, sometimes it also surprises us. When the surprises hit us, what happens? Our natural instincts will kick in first. Right? The moment a problem hits... When a storm hits, naturally, we will go into an operative mode. The fishermen will have immediately tried to tackle the, the, the waves and the, the, the sails, and, and they will have done whatever they would have known how to do. But theologically, sometimes our framework also is tested. We expect God to work in a certain way or not work in a certain way. The surprises would also show up our presuppositions of what the Christian life should or should not be. So surprises will come. But as you embrace them, and we'll see in a very short while, it reveals things. And it will help us when we know how to process some of these surprises in our lives. But as you look at this account, literally again, through a storm, you know what's the most surprising thing? Is to discover Jesus fast asleep. We know this story so well, sometimes we can miss how crazy that sounds, you know. I mean, the winds are howling, the boat is rocking, the waves are coming in the boat, and Jesus is asleep. I mean, that surprises me. 
as if he's oblivious to all the things that are taking place and that his disciples are in danger. And so let's consider this for a little bit. Let's leave Jesus alone for a while. Let's look at the disciples. Let's talk about fear and faith. Matthew 8, 25. Then his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. And don't you love Jesus' reply? He says to them, Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? And then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Like I said, I think the disciples must have tried their best to do all they can. Maybe in their hearts they're thinking, better not disturb Jesus. I mean, he's worked so hard, he's ministered so long, and better don't disturb the, the, the master. So they did their best. But their strengths and their talents and their abilities all came to an end. You want a spiritual lesson? I'll tell you, our abilities can only bring us that far. Right? I mean, you can try all you want. I don't care how skilled you are, how professional you are, how experienced you are. If a, if a mega storm hits us, your abilities will only bring you that far. The second thing is, if it is a supernatural, spiritual, demonic thing that comes against us, your natural talents are no match for the supernatural. That's what we've got to understand. And that's why I can't blame them. I mean, they cried out, help, Lord, we are perishing. Don't, don't ever read this line and say, Yala, you know, Jesus said they're all little faith, you know. <laughs> so terrible. If I was there, I wouldn't be like that. <laughs> I would rather read this. And I say, I look at the disciples, I hear the disciples, and I think I got hope. I mean, there they were walking with Jesus and they are as human as any one of us would be, right? Where we come to a point where our strengths and our abilities just fail us. And I've said this so many times to those who have journeyed with us in our Keeper's Awakening. I praise God for the talents, the skills, the abilities that that He has blessed me with. But I've come to a point to realize that when you want to journey on an assignment with God, your talents and your abilities can only take you that far. And you have to rely on Him. You want to be on kingdom assignment? You've got to learn how to trust the King. If you're only trusting in your own strengths, you will find that you will fail. And so, what happens when fear becomes larger than faith? What happens when fear becomes larger than faith? Why do I word it this way? Because Jesus says, well, Oh, you of little faith. In other words, you of great fear. And sometimes we think, Oh, if there's fear, there cannot be faith. If there's faith, there cannot be fear. Am I correct? As if these two cannot coexist. I'm learning. I'm learning. Now, you can challenge me. Maybe I'm not, I have not reached that level yet. I'm seeing that these two actually happen together, simultaneously at the same time. The question is, which is the one you have more of? Which is the one you have more of? And they had little faith, at least in this account, because in the Gospel of uh, Mark, Jesus actually asked them, how is it you have no faith? So Matthew was already being very kind. I think they had little, uh, very little, tampok. Uh, so Matthew gave them, maybe, yeah, maybe he was writing about himself. <laughs> but his calling of Matthew hadn't come yet, you see. Uh, so we don't know whether is this before or after. Doesn't matter. Huh? Let's not split that hair. My point is this. When fear comes in, if we allow it to take over, it becomes greater and surpasses the faith that we may have. And when fear becomes larger than faith, that's where we begin to struggle. See, fear is not necessarily a bad thing. Fear is a God-given emotion. Just like anger is a God-given emotion. So if you're angry, it doesn't mean that it's necessarily a bad thing. The problem is that in our anger, when we sin, that's a big deal. And so if you're fearful, there's a survival instinct. Fear is not necessarily bad. So God is over and over, you know, He's always assuring His people. He tells them, you do not fear. Meaning to say, you manage that. You know, you don't let it grow to such an extent that it overcomes you. And it's natural for us to fear. It's natural for us to doubt. I don't think you've ever heard a preacher say this before. It's natural because we are human beings in that sense. You know, we will, we live by sight And we must remind ourselves to live by faith. Now, it's natural to fear. It's natural to doubt. Do not be condemned. 
but just don't let that fear become larger than faith. It's not true. Even in your doubt, even in your times where you have been fearful, actually you still believe. Eh? You're still believing, except that your faith and your conviction level is not larger to overcome the doubt that you have. And three things actually happen when fear gets the better of us. The first thing is this, fear questions others and fear questions God. It's a cry for help. And you don't, usually you will not blame yourself. It's never you. Okay, we, we will not blame ourselves. We are not, it's always someone else's fault. Okay, so I'm fearful. Why? Because there's this big thing down there. It's not me, you see. It's just this big thing. Uh, I'm fearful. Why? Because God, you're not coming through for me, you know. Uh, Lord, why don't you save us? It's all your fault, you see. I'm really worried about these things, you know. I'm fearful, I'm doubtful, you know. I, I don't believe God, not, not because I'm, I'm, I'm faithless, uh, but it's, you see, my husband is so mean, and that's why, you know, if he was better, then I would believe God more. You notice this? Fear begins to question and push doubt also on someone else. You just think through all this. I can tell you, you will find that that is a very, very true situation. You start to question, why are you not coming through, Lord? Why is it like this? Why is that? Why do you put me in this situation? The second thing about fear is that fear tempts. The situation around us will begin to tempt us. And I've done a teaching about tempting and testing. When we use the word tempt, is to prove something that is wrong. But when we use the word test in the Greek understanding, is to prove it that it is good. And so you see the disciples, that fear comes in and they tempt the Christ. Lord, save us. Don't you care that we are perishing, right? They actually question Jesus and push the blame to Him and say, you don't care, you know? I mean, if you care, you will wake up. What? And so that was their response that came through. Fear tempts God. Satan was the one who tempted Jesus in the wilderness. If you are the Son of God, why? Because he wants to prove Jesus to fail. And so when fear overwhelms us and the situation is there, we start to wonder and we start to question. Israel in the wilderness, they tempted God. Did you bring us into this wilderness to die? They saw the giants in the land. Although God promised that, they said, God, you brought us here so that they can kill us. And that's why in the Bible, Paul says, don't tempt the Christ. Why do we do this? Because in trying to prove someone is wrong, we prove that we are right, you see. Think about it for a while, right? If I can prove that you're wrong, I prove that I'm right. So I justify why I'm fearful, you see. And naturally, we kick into a self-preservation mode. If it's not our faith that is in question, then it is God's faithfulness that is in question. In other words, God is not as faithful as He makes Himself to be. You see, that's what fear does. And that's what the enemy wants to do. The enemy will keep putting all these things in you and setting all these kind of situations so that you will question God and you will test God. The third thing is that fear reveals the object of our faith. Fear reveals the object of our faith. For many of us, our tendency is to trust in our own strengths and our own abilities, thinking that we are trusting God. Now, this is a tough one to admit. Right? Every time we do something well, oh, praise the Lord, we give Him all glory. Correct. But until a situation happens, until it really comes, until we like don't know what to do already, yeah, it never reveals the object of our faith. Do we really trust God like we say we do? And if we do, how do we respond? See, in any suddenly situation, in any terrible situation, fearful situation, that's the first thing that will come to terms. Fear questions. Fear tempts God. And fear reveals the object of our faith. But as I go through this teaching, as I read Jesus' words to the disciples, why are you fearful, O you of little faith? I look at these two words and I want you to say, thank God for little faith. Thank God for little faith. I'm serious. I'm not joking. See, every time we, we hear a teaching like this, it's almost like the disciples were being chided for having not enough faith. You know what the little faith did for them? The little faith got them to wake Jesus up. They're, they're like pushing through, and it could have been desperation. Fear pushes all these things, all the wrong buttons, everything come out. But at the same time, they also realize, look, 
we just got to wake him up. I don't know how that's going to help, but we got to wake him up. I mean, this is a good Bible teacher. Now, how is, how is he going to help us in this boat? I have no idea. This, this is a really good carpenter, but he's a, I don't know how good he is as a sailor. But it's that little faith that says, I've got nothing else, I've got nothing else to lose. You understand? And it's that little faith that pushes you to Jesus. Never underestimate that, that whatever little bit that you have, and you think about this, I've spoken with so many people, I've ministered with so many people, as much as they are fearful, as much as they are lost, they are not sure what to do, huh? that is that little faith that says, I think I'll still go to church. It's that little faith that still says, no, I think I'll open up that Bible. It's that little faith that still says, I think there's something there. So I look at this passage and I say, don't underestimate that little faith. If your little faith pushes you to Jesus, it is that little faith that will make all the difference. Learn how to manage what faith and fear is all about. And as you grow, I think you will understand this a lot more. So Jesus wakes up. My question is, what did Jesus expect of his disciples? He gets up and he says, why are you fearful, O you of little faith? What does he expect of his disciples? If we learn this well, we can ask them the same question of ourselves. What does He expect of us? Let me just give you some suggestions. Do you notice that Jesus rebuked the wind and the seas, but He spoke to the disciples? Don't miss this. Because if you think Jesus rebuked the disciples and spoke to the wind and the seas, you got it upside down. It doesn't say that, right? The Bible actually tells us he said to them, why are you fearful, O you of little faith? He wasn't scolding them. He was just telling them, hello, it's okay, chill. Then he turns to the wind and see, and he rebukes. So I don't want you to see that if you are struggling in your faith, and you're struggling in your walk with God, Jesus is not going to you and, oh, you're a terrible person, you, you of little faith. <laughs> He's using the opportunity to teach them. I mean, there are other times that he rebuked the disciples. That's true. But I don't think this is the time. And Jesus does not scold us for little faith. But he encourages us to grow that faith. The master is always using another opportunity to teach his disciples. Personally, I don't think Jesus expected the disciples to come the storm. Because it's only in chapter 10 where we realize Jesus gave them all authority to move on. Correct? So he may not have, they may not have graduated from Bible school yet. And he was still teaching them. And he was saying, look, what's wrong? Don't fear. Why, why this little faith? I want you to grow this faith. He was showing something else to them. Later on, he'll give them the power, the authority, as he sends them out on assignment. But in the meantime, you follow me. So first thing, what did Jesus expect? I don't think he was rebuking the disciples. He spoke to the disciples, but he showed them how it works. He rebuked the elements. The second thing, Jesus expected his disciples to understand the fullness of his power and his authority. So whilst he didn't expect them to calm the storms, he's saying, look, you don't even know who this guy is you're following. I'm preaching with authority. You like my teaching? That's good. I've healed all the sickness and all the diseases. You've seen all that and you're impressed with that, but maybe you have not seen this side of me. And I'm telling you, why this little faith? Don't you know that if I have authority in this, then I have authority over the forces of nature and even if it was a demonic attack, that's cool. I'm fine with that. Your little faith. Why so fearful? Don't you know who you are following? Which brings us to the third point. I believe Jesus expected the disciples to remember who is the leader and who are the followers. You notice it wasn't the disciples bringing Jesus to the other side. It was the disciples following Jesus to the other side. And so if you want to follow Jesus, you focus on Him. Your faith is not on yourself. Your faith is on Him. You don't take the lead. Jesus does. You do your part. And Jesus will more than do His part. And even if we are being sent to the other side, and there are other accounts in the Bible about that, without Jesus, Jesus is not in the boat. We are also assured of Jesus' presence, His protection, 
and His power. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Amen? What can separate us from His love? Not even the wildest of windstorms, not even death, not even the, the strongest of demonic attacks. So I believe there's a lesson in all these things and Jesus is really speaking clearly to them. Saying, Why are you fearful? Do I, I, lesson now, okay? Let's review. Let's sit down. Let's have a debrief. Why this little faith? <laughs> Why this little faith? Don't you know this? Don't you see this? Don't you realize? You're following me. I'm not going to let you go. And finally, we come to Matthew's main message. What's this all about? Matthew chapter 8, verse 27 says, So the man marveled, saying, Who can this be? In the ESV version, What sort of man is this? It's not who can this be, as in they didn't know this is Jesus. The translation is more accurate in the ESV. It's not who is this man, it's what kind of a man is this? What kind of a person is this? That even the winds and the sea obey Him. Now remember our last teaching. Jesus already declared, I'm the Son of Man. I am the Son of Man. And it's a messianic title. He says, if you want to follow me, this Son of Man, King, Messiah, know where to lay His head. I think Matthew is quite cute, right? He puts this right inside there and to show you that he's got nowhere to lay his head. Even in the boat, also you have to sleep. Wherever you can rest, you will rest. And he's sleeping at the back of the boat, sleeping on a makeshift pillow. But we know the Son of Man also means a human being. And this is the real funny thing. You read this. On one hand, Jesus was mega tired, super tired, mega exhausted from ministry. Try sleeping through a mega storm as we were talking about just now. On the other hand, Jesus was mega rested. Right? One, he's like mega tired. And the other one, he's mega rested with all the winds and the waves uh, howling around him and splashing on him. What, what kind of a human being is this? What manner of man is this? He's so at peace. Not only that, he comes, he commands the winds and the waves. And to command is one thing, you know, to have the waves obey him. Now that's the one that clinches. You and I can command and command and command and sometimes nothing happens. Am I right? <laughs> Correct, huh? What kind of a man? Not, commanding is not difficult. <laughs> it's the wind and the waves obeying him. And they were like, man. I, I like Mark. Mark uh, records this in chapter 4, verse 41. When they saw Jesus coming, the wind and the waves, they feared exceedingly. They moved from fear, not to faith, to fear. Now I'm kidding. Of course, you know, huh? their faith would have sort of uh, grown a little bit more, right? But from fearing the storm, now they are fear for this man. I don't know what kind of man this is. Huh? The word fear exceedingly in the Greek huh, is phobeo phobos. Fear, fear. It's double fear. It's mega fear. From fearing a mega storm, now they are in awe, mega awe of this one person. And that's why they ask this question, what kind of a man is this? You see, to the Jews, there's only one person who had control over the elements. These were good Jews. They would know their scriptures. They would go to the synagogue. They would read the Psalms. They would know that in Exodus chapter 14, verse 21, Moses stretches out his hand and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all night. He can command the winds and the waves and the sea. Psalm 89, verses 8 and 9. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty thy you, O Lord? Your faithfulness also surrounds you. Verse 9. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Who is this talking about? This is talking about Yahweh. This is talking about God Almighty. To the Jew, this is the only person who can calm the seas. This is the only person who can still the storms. Psalm 107, verses 23 to 32, the entire passage. But in verse 29, you know, after it talks about these guys who do their business on the sea, they are experienced uh, seafarers, they are seamen, uh, and the storms come and they're crying out desperation and they don't know what to do, they cry out. And in verse 29, he calms the storm so that its waves are still. Sound familiar? 
Almost exact kind of a situation. Jonah chapter 1 verse 4. The Lord sends out a great wind on the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea. There's only one person who can command this. This person is God. And that's why when you look at this whole passage, Matthew's main point, his main intent, his main message, his intention was not allegorical, was not inspirational. His main intent was Christological. He wants to show you who this Christ is, what this Christ is all about. If we miss this, we miss the entire message of Matthew. You follow? We will say, oh, with Christ in the vessel, we can smile at the storm, you know. Oh, Jesus comes the storms, you know. Oh, you know, uh, when the storms of life come against us, uh, we, we can be happy and we can be... All those are very inspirational, very encouraging and so on. But if you miss who Jesus is, you miss the entire message. This is Matthew's intent. And our problem is that in church, many times we tend to spiritualize the account. We want to draw teachings from it. I mean, they're all well and good. But we become too symbolic and we miss who the Christ is. And that's why people can believe in Jesus Christ and still not consider Him God. People can go through their Christian life and still not know Jesus. The main focus is Jesus. The main focus is the Christ. Matthew's intent for the entire book is always to show who Jesus is, that He is the Messiah, that He is the Son of Man, He is the Christ. He is not just fully man, but He is also fully God. One moment, He's a picture of exhaustion and tiredness sleeping at the back of the boat. The next moment, He's in total control. And these two are juxtaposed one on the other. If you, if you try to understand this, it will wreck your brain. It will be a mystery, I can tell you. You know, you read this, oh, he's God, okay, uh, but he's asleep. Uh, yeah, but if he's God, and the Bible says that he neither slumbers nor sleeps. But he's asleep. But he's a man, okay, I get it. He's a man, so he sleeps. But he's God, you will wreck your bread. And that's the mystery of Jesus, the Son of Man, and Jesus, the Son of God. See, Matthew's main message comes through very clearly. That one line where we see it and read it as Jesus will save us from our problems. Jesus will help us through a crisis. Jesus will give me a breakthrough in a storm. That one line talks about salvation. Lord, save us, we are perishing. Save us, we are perishing. It's not just out of a little trouble. The cry of the disciples, it has a greater, far greater significance. First, there's an acknowledgement of the need to be saved. There is an awareness of impending death and destruction. This is not a play pay thing. They cannot help themselves. Nobody can save them. It's not just from physical harm. Matthew's intent is to show you that this Messiah is not there just to save you from a physical storm, is there to save you from spiritual destruction. And he's consistent because if you see from Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, right in the start, chapter 1, he declares that the angel says to Joseph that Mary will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus, God who saves, for he will save his people from their sins. Matthew's point is not that he will save you from a storm. Matthew's point is that he will save us from our sins. And a man cannot do that. Only God can. You see, you can go through the biggest crisis. Jesus can help you. But you see, if you don't believe in Jesus and you don't follow Him and not faithful, that is still your own decision. Am I correct? You can mess up your entire life. Jesus can deliver you. You can be sick and Jesus can heal you. And I've shared in our past teachings, our physical deliverance is good. Our physical healing is good. But if we don't have what is final, it all means nothing. And so when Jesus saves us, the question is, how do we now respond? How do we live for Him? And how do we follow Him? So as we bring this to a close, once again I say it's a, it's a very familiar passage. And I want to challenge you 
not to have that immediate reaction to spiritualize it. I want to stay true to Matthew's main intent. He's trying to show you Jesus is God. Jesus is Messiah. He's worthy of all praise. He's worthy of all worship. He's worthy of your service. Settle that first. And once you get that correct, then you ask yourself this question. Are you all ready to get in the boat with Jesus? Are you ready to get on board with Him? Are you ready to move with Him to the other side? Are you ready to follow Him wherever He tells you to go and wherever you are sent, whatever He wants you to do? If you don't settle that Jesus is this God that you want to serve, then all you're doing is perhaps getting into some Christian activity. Praise the Lord. Are you ready to go deeper? Are you ready to go further? Are you ready to go beyond? You're not just following a good man. You're not just following some nice principles that will. You're following a God who saves. And as you do that, will you be prepared for the uncertainties of a life lived with and for Jesus? Because if you're not ready for the surprises, I can tell you, you will go kicking and screaming every step of the way. Am I right? Yeah? You will attend lesson after lesson, seminar after seminar, conference after conference. Wow, they're all so inspirational, you know. But when the Lord says, will you get a line that you can be assigned? You say, well, let me think first. Huh? Let, let, me, let me read the fine print a little bit more. Let me pray a little bit harder. Hello, Jesus died for us. Jesus has saved us. Our lives no longer belong to us. What's there to think about? It's either Jesus or nothing. But the sudden leaves will come. The curved balls will come. Because if you are moving with the kingdom of God, the enemy will not take it sitting down. I think we've got to understand this. We've got to embrace this. We follow Jesus wherever He goes. What's your idea of fear and what's your idea of faith? Let me again, let me encourage you. Do not feel condemned. Do not feel condemned. Okay, let me encourage you. Some of you might be sitting down here. Oh, I, I, my faith is not like yours. It's okay. A little faith is okay. A little faith brought you here. Amen. A little faith caused you to want to know what Jesus is really saying. Don't let the fear get the better of your faith. Just remember who you are following. What's the object of your faith? I've got so many people coming to me and to Serena and say, wow, you guys got seven children or you guys got great faith. <laughs> and I always have to tell them, can I say something? Great faith is useless without a great God. You see, it's not us having great faith. A lot of people who don't believe in God actually have great faith, right? They have great faith that there's no God. So it's not the great faith. It's the great faith in a great God. What's the object of your faith? Where are you placing your faith? Jesus, yes, He can, he can calm storms. He can still the storms. And He's still able to do that. Literally. Literally. But don't look at this one passage and think, that He will always still our storms. Does that surprise you? Jesus can still storms still, but He will not always still our storms. Let me explain this. Sometimes He's the one that sends the storm. You realize that in the case of Jonah, because he was disobedient, God allowed the storm. And God can allow the storms in our lives so that we will turn to Him. It reveals things, I told you, right? As we question, it shows our theological framework and so on. Sometimes it's not because of disobedience. Sometimes it's because of obedience. The disciples were obedient to follow Jesus across to the other side. How come the storms came? God allowed it, and it happens. There are times He will still the storms, and there are times He will leave the storms unstilled so that our weakness would show up His strength that is perfect. So let's understand this carefully. At the end, regardless the outcome, whether the storms are there or whether the storms are stilled, we don't let fear overwhelm the faith that we have. You keep trusting and you keep following. And so I pray that you will make a decision this evening because the invitation is still there for you to get to the other side. Jesus is still saying, I'm getting on the boat. All aboard? 
How many of you are saying, yep, I'm hopping on. I'm in. And sometimes to leave the shore is, is uncomfortable. I, I like the, the familiar ground. I like the steadiness of the shore. When you get into the boat, now, always bobbing up and down. I get seasick. But Jesus is saying, I'm worth that following. Will you follow me? Will you come on board? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are God. That was Matthew's intent, and I pray that you would have revealed yourself to us afresh this evening. Lord, we may have known it intellectually, we may have declared it, but Lord, I pray that you are not just a God that grants us things, you're not just a God that sort of bails us out of of problems we find ourselves in, but Lord, that you are God that is, that is, there's no other You are the name above all names. You are the King of kings. You are the Lord of lords. You are worthy of all worship, all praise, all following. You're not just there for us to to call out only when there's a time of need, Lord. As important and as true as that is, you're always there to help us. But Lord, may we come to a new understanding that we serve you because you are worthy. Some of us, Lord, we might be going through our suddenlies or the surprises that life may have thrown us. Maybe it's our own doing. Maybe you have allowed it. Maybe it's something else. We don't know what it is. But if you're going through that storm right now, then just understand that maybe God is trying to get your attention. Maybe God is allowing it to strengthen your faith. Maybe God is allowing it so that you can learn something. You may have asked questions. You, you may have tempted God in that same, same way to try to pull Him down to say, Lord, you, you, are you sure you are faithful? Can I en- encourage you this evening? Jesus is faithful. God is faithful. Would you continue to put your trust in Him? Keep following Him. On to the other side, serving Him no matter what happens. Because in the end, He is a God that is worthy of all. And so, Lord, will you help us all? In our weakness, let your strength be made perfect. If there's fear in our hearts, will you drive that fear far away? Will you let faith uh, grow strong that we can love you more and to serve you even more faithfully? We bless you, Lord. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.